Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and uh, just all-around good guy. Always. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> Today we have uh, both Mike T. Nelson and uh, Josh Cotter, Dr. Cotter, and we're going to be doing a, sort of a whirlwind tour of summer science meetings. Uh, I guess the intent sort of being that, you know, it's almost like being there um, sort of thing. I want to share one thing real quick, though, since this is sort of a whole episode of news, sort of science news. I want to start with one you guys might find funny. Strength and muscle sport news. Um, the new men's fitness magazine, July 2013, there's... Uh, an article in here by Ben Radding on diets. And listen to this, the cookie diet. This made me think of those anabolic brownies. It says, um, the cookie diet. Versions of this diet generally have you consuming four to six amino acid-dense cookies per day. Apparently, you eat like 500 calories a day worth of this stuff. Um, and it's supposed to trick your mind into thinking that you're not dieting. I don't know. So I didn't even, hadn't heard of that, the cookie diet. Uh, it reminds me of the Twinkie diet, to be honest, although the Twinkie yeah. diet was just about calories. At least this one's trying to sneak protein into it. And I have problems with all those things because it's not sustainable. You know, It doesn't teach them anything. No. In fact, yeah. this is called uh, diets we won't be trying this summer. I just thought it was funny as far as a little bit of the pseudoscience, you know, because uh, I don't know. Yeah, people are always looking for the next fad diet. And it, you know what's remarkable to me, and I don't know how much uh, you guys see this, but even professional people are constantly talking about different fad diets. It's amazing how susceptible people are, regardless of their level of education, some of these really stupid <laughs> diets. Yeah, anyway. This freaking one, the cayenne pepper and vinegar diet. Or whatever the hell oh, man, there's so many. I know. You're right. Okay, so uh, first of all, um, Mike, how about if you introduce yourself first? You're on all the time. Sure, I'm uh, Mike T. Nelson. I'm... Finishing my PhD in exercise physiology. Hope they should be done this uh, October. You can find more information for me at www.miketnelson.com. Cool. And um, Dr. Cotter, how about you? Uh, yeah, I uh, let's see. I think it's been a year since uh, I was on, maybe a little bit more. But I am an exercise physiologist. I perform research at the University of California in Irvine, and I teach exercise physiology at uh, Cal Poly Pomona. Uh, now, I am not aware, Josh, but did you attend ISSN this year? Yeah, I did. I was right there along with uh, Mike Nelson. Okay, well, let's start with you then, and then we'll go to Mike, too. But um, what was juicy at ISSN? Uh, well, actually, it was my first ISSN, so it was. I, I thought it was refreshing to go there <laughs> compared to experimental biology or ACSM because it was much more uh, intimate, smaller atmosphere, uh, seemed to be easier to have a flow of ideas. Uh, so I was I was impressed. I thought it was um, a nice mix of, uh, you know, they had two rooms. They had an applied room and they had more of a research room. Uh, I stayed in the research room. I think Mike Nelson went back and forth a bit more than I did. So hopefully he'll be able to, uh, well, we'll both be able to give you guys a uh, a few different thoughts on on what occurred there. Um, in response to what's juicy, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I left necessarily with anything that really uh, got me super excited, um, but that's me. <laughs> I, I tend to look um, not negatively, but I'm always conscious about anything I hear. Uh, so I think that's part of it. But uh, I think we'll start out with something that I think might be interesting for the audience. And uh, it was my first time listening to uh, Jacob Wilson. I've talked to him a bit on email before, super nice guy, uh, really responsive to ideas. And uh, he talked about uh, several different supplements that uh, I, I thought was interesting. So he had two separate talks. One talk was 
uh, utilizing oral ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate, and then he also went to talk uh, about HMB, which is something that we've all heard of, very popular in the uh, 90s, uh, somewhat making a recurrence in research now. And then he talked about the combination of the two. Uh, actually, uh, taking oral ATP, I'm not as much up on all of the breaking supplements as I think you guys are, but that was something that was new for me. And uh, I was actually surprised that uh, I haven't heard more about it because, if you know, if you ask someone that has any rational mind, you think, well, ATP is the energy source of the body. Why not? Why not just take more of it? <laughs> you know, provide the body with more more energy source. Uh, so it was interesting to, to listen to that. Um, you I, know I what, want, Josh, if I can yeah. interject. So sure. there's about one calorie worth of ATP in your whole body, right? And for just for yeah. listeners, so your body continually resynthesizes it. So I can understand taking something like creatine, which would provide an energy pool to resynthesize it. But exactly. ATP levels, concentrations are tightly regulated in a cell. So yeah. did, did um, Dr. Wilson say that eating it works, quote, unquote? Or Yeah, that was uh, a bit interesting as what was said in the... Um, in his talk versus kind of some digging that I did uh, with the help of uh, Sean Casey, who's a, a great a great researcher, able to dig up some good stuff. But uh, he did actually go on to say that uh, oral ATP, uh, for instance, I, I think this might be his research, but don't don't quote me on that. That oral ATP for 14 days uh, increased one repetition max in untrained individuals, and and this is what the key is that I thought was interesting. While doing absolutely nothing, they didn't train. And after 14 days of oral ATP, they were able to increase their one repetition max. Huh. Uh, that was interesting. And then he also went on to say uh, higher strength, hypertrophy, training volume with strength-trained individuals increased after 12 weeks of AT, oral ATP supplementation. There, I, I only found a few other research studies that showed, uh, for instance, uh, maintenance of uh, low uh, peak torque, uh, during fatiguing exercise, so in other words, uh, as fatigue or as torque starts to level off at the end of fatiguing exercise, you're able to maintain higher torque, and there were small ergogenic effects on one repetition max fatigue and total lifting volume. But uh, like I said with Sean Casey, he came up with a study, and then I did some more digging. Uh, I looked at uh, uh, Kulin and his colleagues. I have a couple research articles out there that show the bioavailability of ATP and uh, most of the studies have used around 400 milligrams daily of a dose, and, and these studies on bioavailability used up to 5,000 milligrams, so 5 grams of ATP. And they pretty much showed that a after even up to 28 days that it did not alter uh, fasting whole blood or plasma ATP concentration. And the only thing they really saw was an increase in uric acid, which is a metabolic byproduct, which is reported to be an antioxidant. And it may or may not be part of the reason why why we might see some of those ergogenic effects. So, I don't know. I'm still really on the line with this, and I, I personally need to do a little bit further uh, research on it. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, it's if you go back and look at the history of it, like Lonnie was saying, I mean, I remember hearing about this, oh, man, initially in the late 90s. I remember asking one of my exercise physics professors at the time, and the thinking then was, oh, it's not orally, you know, bioavailable, ah, it does nothing. And then I think like three or four years ago, a company came out with it, but there wasn't, like you said, much research, um, you know, behind it, and it kind of fell out of favor. And, you know, now there's some newer research uh, showing, like, exactly the studies you said that, you know, it may end up being useful. The thing that I thought was interesting is that I don't know if we know the exact mechanism of how it works. So, like, some of the earlier supplements, like ribose and things like that, were supposed to increase the adenosine pool, which should right. help with ATP. And yeah, and healthy people, athletic people, that that sort of theory never panned out. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the sort of proposed mechanisms is that when uh, red blood cells actually get deformed, right? So when they're being pushed through the small capillaries, the theory is that they actually release some ATP into the plasma. And so my understanding was that you know, maybe it works on some mechanism related to that where the intra-workout recovery, so from set to set or rep to rep, then maybe you can get some more ATP release and then, you know, be able to do a little bit more work, that type of thing. Uh, if I can add something, uh, I'm not a magic worker, but if I have an untrained individual for a week and I just get them to practice a move for a week, I can make them stronger. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh sure. I mean, that's that's what I would question about the study. You know, that's I, I wish more studies were done on highly trained people of this type of thing. You know, take an athlete, and if you give him it and he gets 10% stronger, now we're working with something. Yeah. You Josh, know? did they have a control group like everybody was treated the same? Right. That I am not sure with on that uh, study where uh, they did nothing. But I, I do want to chime in uh, to give credit where credit's due. They did do um, uh, the other, the second study that I mentioned, were strength-trained individuals. And, okay. and, and based on what uh, Dr. Wilson states, um, he, he seems like he's really, um, really serious about getting those athletes that are really like strength-trained, not, you know, just kind of messing around in the gym a couple times a week, but these are, like, really serious, uh, strength-trained individuals. So, you know, I'll, I'll give them credit for that one. You know, I will say this. Um, if there was a mechanism, or I'm sorry, like a, a performance outcome variable that would make sense, I would think it might be one rep max, but, like, Mike, uh, one of you guys just mentioned, like, low torque kind of fatigue. I would think, you know, cell levels of ATP are just so tightly regulated that, you know, there, there'd be less PFK activity, less glycolysis, whatever, and it would just homeostasis would ruin that effect. You know that your biochemistry would just adjust, um, except for something like a one rep max, where you might be able to sneak in just a little bit more ATP before the cell's normal energy machinery doesn't just compensate for it. You know what I'm right. saying? Exactly. The, the time span uh, being such short, a short time span for one repetition max. That's where I might see the most likely outcome. I mean rationally thinking about it um so I, I agree just quickly then um so jacob's saying quote unquote it works uh i i'll uh kind of sum up what what his conclusion was and, okay. and we're, we're skipping over what the um uh what he talked about with hmb uh but looking at oral atp and hmb uh, he stated that there might uh even looking at the combination of the two be uh, an added effect for hypertrophy, uh, meaning that each one works for hypertrophy and, and you can add those effects together and potentially a synergistic effect with strength, uh, meaning that, you know, uh, the effects of each of those sort of magnify the effects on, on strength. And he was, uh, based on everything that he's looked at in his, his studies, and I believe a lot of this is unpublished as of now, but um, I think he made a bit of an emphasis on these effects may only be seen following very strenuous programs. And just, just for fun, um, it was interesting to listen to the program that he initiated for his subjects. It was an undulating program where, um, trying to pull some of this from memory, but I think there were three or four days of high volume work. There was one day where they did repetitive, I think one to three repetition max sets. And then they had a fifth day where they did repeated Wingate tests. And Wingate tests are you know, the test where you're on a on a cycle ergometer and you you pretty much sprint all out for 30 seconds. They're completely exhausting, oftentimes inducing vomiting in some patients. Uh, so it it was quite quite a program. And his conclusion was that uh, oral ATP operates during high volume type exercise programs, so maybe like a bodybuilding type program. HMB works more or less between workouts for fatigue management and recovery. And for for people that are out there that maybe want to try this or are interested in it, he, he recommended a dosing of 400 milligrams of ATP per day. Um, he was really hitting on HMB uh, free acid form, which is a different form than the traditional uh, HMB at uh, three grams minimum 30 minutes before exercise. And he did, just, just for those people out there, he did mention that uh, some of the conclusions are – uh, a bit observational. There are some non-significant changes, but maybe some trends that look like they might be there. So, again, that always throws out some cautiousness for us when we try to interpret some of these research results. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. What's your thought? Uh, Mike and I have discussed in recent episodes, actually, you know, HMB's history is a little bit controversial. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, Jacob Wilson really seems to be pro HMB. Uh, what's what's your take on all that? I uh, I always hate to take the downer approach, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know I, I think for most people, you know, when it comes to supplementation, and maybe it's just the people I come into contact with, I think uh, there might be something to it. Obviously, there is some research out there showing some beneficial responses to it, but. Uh, 
In regards to the whole scheme of things, I think there are other more important aspects to change uh, before this, you know, quote unquote supplement might be incorporated into someone's program. That's typically the most people I come into contact with fall into that category. So uh, in conclusion, I think there might be something to it, but only for those, you know, small amounts of people that, that are ready for that, that have have control over these other aspects of, of their lifestyle and training and diet. And, right. And, well, like Phil says, you know, I mean, this training stimulus alone, you know, has such magnitude compared to some of these things. What about versus leucine? Uh, Mike and I discussed a paper recently that actually compared um, leucine to uh, apparently the, the free acid of HMB, and they were it was showing that leucine was more protein synthetic, but that HMB might have a anti-catabolic or, uh, you know, preservation kind of effect. What do you think about leucine versus HMB? Well, there's so much research on leucine. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to argue with what leucine does in the body. But uh, I think what Dr. Wilson mentioned is that uh, we can't really ingest enough uh, leucine to get uh, a supplement dose of HMB. And so, yeah, I think you're right that there might be something working on that balance between uh, proteolysis and protein synthesis that might be there. But I I don't think that uh, at least based I, – I don't know of this study, so I might be missing something. But based on what I've seen, I, I don't know if, if the dietary amounts of leucine that we can take um, or even, even through supplementation is going to be enough to cause for large enough levels of HMB to see those effects that we've seen in research. I see. Now, Mike, can – can you explain to listeners uh, w- what the differences are in the kinds of HMB? Yeah, the the main one that I know of is the old school one, I guess you could say, which is HMB, and I believe it's bound to calcium. And I think the biggest change was that the the peak levels, um, so the quote-unquote HMB and calcium, the more common one, um, takes quite a while. I think it was like a couple hours, and you had a dosage more frequently, um, I think it was like 90 minutes peak, um, where the HMB free acid, it appears that you can do a much higher dose um, pre-training. Uh, like Josh was saying, it peaks at around 30 minutes. Um, oh. That appears to be a little bit of difference in kinetics, which, again, if you're using it with athletes, may make it you know, easier to be used and dosed and that type of thing. I don't, I don't know much of the, too much of the differences beyond that, to be honest. So in lay terms, it sounds like the free acid form is faster, faster acting? Correct, yep. yeah. Phil, what's your take on the whole leucine HMB thing? Do you think this is all superfluous? I, or? God, I, I don't think the HMB thing's ever going to die because it. <laughs> for, for, when it first came out, it was like God's gift to training is what people <laughs> put it out as. So, and it's never really panned out in the real world. But uh, I, I agree. I mean, I think like most supplements, uh, people think it's going to be that magic bullet, but it's really that point. Zero one percent addition to an already solid program. Yeah, um, I don't really push supplements on anybody uh, aside from not those type of supplements. You know, mm-hmm. fish oils and stuff like that. And I'm a big proponent of creatine, but I don't know. I mean, I don't. I gave up on a lot of them myself and just haven't needed them. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, it was more of a waste of time and money. And then you start stressing over. I need to take it at this exact time, and you know, you're popping seven hundred pills and sixteen powders. And it just didn't, it, it seemed like more stress and more loss of money than it was worth. Yeah, I think as far as, well, first of all, single amino acids can have mild pharmaceutical-like effects. I mean, they're in energy drinks, you know. Um, leucine is, like Josh was saying, there's lots of research on this. In fact, I was reading yeah. an old textbook, and it was very old even then, back in the um, <laughs> 90s when I was in grad school, that was talking about the history of leucine being protein synthetic. I think as far as sports nutrition it's one of the things that actually, quote unquote, works or you know does what it suggests it does, but whether it actually adds uh, muscle mass or any kind of appreciable muscle mass over time, I think that's always going to be the big question. I mean, there's been a couple of papers that questioned whether or not it would even help. I think in older guys, now that might be a an absorption issue or whatnot, but um, at least acutely, it does seem to work. I mean, I will say this: I will occasionally consume leucine or leucine peptides, but that's because I can get them cheap or free. And I don't I don't know if I would spend $40 for a canister of it necessarily. I would want to see some serious bang for the buck there. 
I don't know, Josh, have you ever consumed leucine or just whey protein for its leucine content kind of thing? Uh, I, I pretty much keep it simple. That's actually one of, I don't use uh, uh, really too many supplements for sports performance, if you will, or recovery, but uh, I, I do use uh, just branched chain amino acids during the workout. I, I find that I can digest them uh, much easier than if I'm, I'm using a protein supplement. Um, that's pretty much all I've used them for. But uh, right. I, I so like them. Listeners, of course, branch chains being leucine, isoleucine, and valine. I'd like to see, sorry, I was going to add one. One thing I'd like to see is, you know, maybe I need to do a test. Usually I'm dealing with well-fed individuals because I'm in strength sports. And, you know, I'd like to see it pan out over like six months with well-fed individuals. You know, they're already getting enough complete amino acids, um, you know, all of them. And, and see where it pans out. I, I think, you know, potentially I think it could be beneficial in, like, dieting when you guys are, like, if you're dieting for your show and stuff. Yeah. Where you're not getting a ton and you're getting these spikes then. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I'm dealing with people that are eating powerlifters, Highland Games athletes, track and field. You know, you, most of my people are very well fed, um, you know, and they're already getting a lot. Of it's that. a good point, yeah. Phil. I mean, I think, but well, Stu Phillips, I know, like, for example, in He's done some research where experienced weightlifters actually needed less protein uh, if they were well-fed calorie-wise, you know, and I think that might shock a lot of people. Uh, But you could look at research all the way back to Gail Butterfield in the 70s and 80s and whatnot about, you know, obviously there's an energy issue here, you know, and if you're well-fed with calories, yeah, you might not need as much protein as you think you do, you know, so. And one other point on that, too, that, the numbers you're dealing with here are actually kind of small, right? So that how much sort of muscle tissue you can deposit, you know, per day, even if you do everything correctly, is, you know, probably only around like 10 grams, right? So if you yeah. miss one meal or you don't have the, the correct threshold dose of leucine and, okay, maybe you're at eight, you know, to some people, obviously that, you know, over time makes a pretty big difference to them. To the average person even extrapolated out over a year, you're still only talking like a couple pounds, you know, so it's a, the numbers you're dealing with that are also unfortunately end up being kind of on the smaller scale too, which makes it harder to see what's actually going on. Right. So, Mike, let me ask you this. Then uh, the tales of anabolic steroids putting 30 pounds on people in a month, if you can only lay down 10 grams at a time synthetically, that would suggest that it's the anti-catabolic effects or even just the water retentive effects of anabolics that make people put on weight so fast. Yeah, and that was actually quoted for natural athletes, not enhanced. So I don't know if the number changes, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's one of the theories of steroids, right, that they completely shut down a lot of the catabolic processes, too, in addition to other effects. Right, yeah. Okay, so, Mike, since we're, um, we've got you here going, what about the practical side of the meeting? Anything juicy there? Um, I thought overall was was pretty good. Um, there was some interesting stuff. I know Josh was in this one, too, about looking at the type of whey protein. So if you use, like, a hydrolysate versus a whey protein concentrate, is there really any difference between those two? A couple studies said maybe. Um, and the one study that uh, Chris Lockwood did that I think is coming out pretty soon, um, they actually did a placebo group, uh, whey protein concentrate, and then a whey protein hydrolysate, and they actually used the same amounts for all of them. So the placebo was just 30 grams of carbohydrate. And what they saw was that, you know, lean body mass in the two protein groups were actually almost the same. One rep max was almost the same. But what was interesting is that the whey protein hydrolysate group um, actually had a small amount of fat loss. And I think if I remember right, maybe Josh can quote me, I don't remember what it was from that study, but it was relatively small. I think in the Paul Cribb study from 2006, they saw a drop of about 1.5 grams, I'm sorry, 1.5 kilograms of fat in the hydrolysate group. Um, And that matched some uh, rat data that uh, Mike Roberts uh, did. And there appears to be an increase in the molecular level for fatty acid synthesis or lipolysis also um, that hydrolysates may have a slight, quote-unquote, fat-burning effect. Um, but again, you know, the numbers we're talking about here are still pretty small, and there's only been a, a few studies that have actually looked at that difference. 
And anyone who's used an actual whey hydrolysate, it tastes horrible. <laughs> I ordered some direct from the manufacturer years ago when hydrolysates came out in the market. And you can, you can spec them by the weight in Daltons. So the smaller weight, the smaller the protein fractions actually are, and the worse they taste. So I got some with, you know, no flavoring, no nothing. I tried it and I spit it back in my sink. It was just, oh. it was bad. I've actually used that as a, you know, a way to verify if a supplement that claims it has hydrolysates in it, if it doesn't, <laughs> Tastes bad. It's probably not in there because they're funky, nasty cheese. At the end, yeah. they're, they're bitter. Well, it's pre-digested, right? I mean, yeah. that's what hydrolysates are. They're pre-digested, so that sounds kind of gross, you know? Yeah, yeah, and just the degree of hydrolysate makes a difference. The process of what process you use to make the hydrolysate um, makes a difference too. But yeah, I thought that was interesting in terms of um, differences. And one other thing on related to protein, kind of what Phil was talking about too, I won't name any names, but some newer companies or just companies in general who sell a lot of protein are actually spiking it with glycine and taurine because those two amino acids are still pretty inexpensive. And on the label, you can still put the same amount of protein. Um, so it, eh, just be aware of that. There's no way you can tell by looking at the label but if you're buying the world's cheapest protein and they say that it's, you know, 100%, you know, whey protein isolate or one of the more expensive forms and it seems like half the price of the other ones, yeah, you got to wonder about it. <clears throat> Mike, uh, in addition to, to what you said on the increased lipolysis, just to throw out some positives and negatives, uh, they did also, I believe, state that there were there was improvement in uh, beta cell function, so yep. uh, potential benefits for um, insulin regulation and also suppressed appetite, which I thought was interesting. But in regards to what you said, I think the most uh, interesting for me that I most wasn't aware of was the different degrees of hydrolysis. So that makes it very hard to yeah. interpret uh, any research that does come out or even the manufactured hydrolysis that we can purchase there's so much variation there, and then, as just stated, with the the taste, and even if there is any benefit, the the cost, the monetary cost of what you're paying for, I, I don't know if it's I don't know if you agree or not, but I, I don't know if it's worth worth it yet. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. the The one thing I have noticed, the two things, just playing around with hydrolysis, is uh, pre-workout, they, I do notice that they tend to be digested better and faster. Like I don't have as many gut issues. Most clients report that they don't have, you know, as many, you know, GI type issues with them if they're using them before training. Um, and then also people who have just sort of allergies to stuff, if you actually get an actual hydrolysate and they don't, you know, disgust at the taste, um, they, they tend to be tolerated pretty well by most people, probably again because they're mostly pre-digested. Um, so the, the allergen reaction to it seems to be a little bit less, even for some people who have other reactions to dairy, too. Okay, so anything else from ISSN before we go to break? I think we could go on for hours, but... <laughs> Did you want to talk about uh, phosphatidic acid there, Dr. Cotter? Let's talk about that real quick. We'll go to break after the phosphatidic acid. So what's going on there? Uh, well, to, to start out, just uh, it, it was pretty new for me to uh, listen to, but um, you know, phosphatidic acid is part of our cell membranes. Uh, after I researched it a bit myself, apparently it's been um, conserved uh, evolutionarily uh, in yeast to mammals, which I thought was pretty interesting. So there's a mechanism there that um, seems to be conserved for allowing this phosphatidic acid to bind directly to mTOR, which... Hopefully the audience has heard about mTOR uh, in some of the sessions before, but it's a key uh, activator for muscle protein synthesis. And from what I found, uh, there, there was some recent evidence to show that it does actually bind directly to mTOR, activating it to increase uh, muscle protein synthesis. And, and even there are a few other mechanisms involved as well. And so uh, Jacob Wilson is, is looking at supplementation with phosphatidic acid, and uh, I think... Um, he showed plasma levels peak somewhere after two hours after ingestion of the, the supplement with about 750 milligrams per day. And he showed a couple kilograms increased in lean body mass 
during just a maintenance exercise program. So no, you know, not trying to necessarily increase strength or hypertrophy, but with a maintenance program, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting. And then they also utilized that really rigorous undulating uh, periodization program that I discussed with those high volume days, the strength day, the fatiguing day, and uh, also found increased cross-sectional area, lean body mass, as well as decreased body fat. Um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you've done any more digging. I, I haven't had too much of a chance to, to look in the research, but what, what do you think? Yeah, the only other study I can find right now that's been released is the one Jake talked about from Hoffman, which is a 2013, which is actually only a pilot study. So a lot of pilot studies are, in general, just underpowered in order to show anything. But like you said, in that group, which again was underpowered, uh, phosphatidic acid group gained about 1.7 kilograms compared to a placebo, which was no change. And again, if you want to argue statistics, that was underpowered, so it may or may not hold true in the, a bigger study. Um, there isn't too much out there other than that. Um, the company that, that owns the patent on it is Chemi Nutra. They came out with it last year, and I thought after going to ISSN last year that it was going to be in every product, and I didn't hear anything about it. Um, but I think after Jake's study and some other stuff going on, you know, you'll probably start seeing it in a couple of months, is my guess, from talking to people in the industry. Um, like you said, that the nice part with Jake's group is that, you know, it's pretty high-level athletes. I mean, most of the guys are squatting, you know, two times body weight, very, very high volume. Um, they also included more uh, novel exercises. So the theory is that phosphatidic acid may actually help with more uh, novel exercises. And, you know, so far, at least on the data that we have, shows that it may be pretty good. But, you know, again, you're talking about, you know, one study that was a pilot study and another study that's about the only ones out. Some cell culture data that shows it may be beneficial also. So it's, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens with it in the future. But, again, so far, unlimited data, you know, looks good. And like anything else that's new, there's a lot more questions than there are answers to, which is just the way that it goes. Find novel exercises. Um, so what they did is they, I think they were trying to do things to change it up a little bit. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they had for novel, but I think they rotated between different types of bench press, different types of squat, different types of deadlifts, that type of thing. I'm not sure exactly what they considered to be a, a novel exercise. Isn't that what they call the uh, muscle confusion? Isn't that muscle confusion? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just wondering. I mean, because, I mean, in cases like that, I mean, like you guys know, I mean, if, if we take Mike and have him do something new and we practice it for two weeks, that something new is no longer new and he's better at it. <laughs> you, know, type of, you know, you get, there's neural adaptation to anything new as well. I mean, where we don't get stronger, actually. But, oh yeah, yeah, no, I, no, I definitely agree with that. And <clears throat> the one nice thing about his lab is that they are, you know, the nutrition is all supervised. Every single yeah. set and rep that they do in the lab is actually supervised, and the athletes in general are pretty advanced. Um, and and all those things, you know, there's pluses and minuses to that. But you know, like you said, Phil, most studies are done on completely untrained people or recreationally trained, and. Yeah. It's a sad reality that just trying to get even remotely trained people into a study, especially a training study where you're looking at 8 to 12 weeks and you have to get them in the lab every day, and it, unfortunately the logistics of it become a nightmare. Uh, but I agree that if you take new people, of course they're going to get you know better. So <laughs> Right. Well, let's be clear about something, though, that Jacob's obviously a, a scientist who's going to have half the people in a control group Right. I mean, it's not like yep. you're just looking at one group over time yeah, and saying, oh, they got yeah. big, they mu it must be the supplement. They're not doing that. Yeah, yeah and the, the study design for the phosphatidic acid was eight weeks. I think it was like 15 people in each group. So training, 15 placebo, uh, double blind, placebo controlled, that type of thing, which it's a good design. Right. Yeah. Okay, fellas, let's, um, let's go to break quickly. And when we come back, uh, we'll wrap up anything left from ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition Conference. And then we'll talk about the American College of Sports Medicine meeting as well.
Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Lonnie and Phil, and we've got uh, Josh Cotter and Mike T. Nelson with us, um, both researchers, uh, general science guys that are combing the um, conferences for for interesting, you know, new developments and that sort of thing. Sometimes new developments uh, are exciting. Sometimes they're not as exciting. You know, we don't know if it's going to pan out or not. But Mike, you had one last um, comment or story about um, time of day eating. Yeah, so I got to talk to my buddy, Dr. Mike Ornsby, who's doing some pretty cool research in his lab um, looking at eating at night. Um, the study actually just came out a couple of days ago. I think it was British, hmm, British Medical Journal. I can't remember exactly which journal. Um, but what's interesting is if you poll most people, they would say, oh, eating at night is just horrible. You're just going to get fat. Um, and what he found in the study and from his group was basically no that the catch was if you were active and you were training, having cards and you know protein at night was actually beneficial. There was a slight bump in your metabolism uh, overnight. Uh, there was another study that came out, mm, God, six months ago. I think it was Van Loon's lab, but I could be wrong on that, showing that protein at night um, did help with uh, recovery, helping protein uh, synthesis. Um, what was interesting and from him is that he has another study he's working on, which is not out yet, and I believe they took not active people and did the same thing, and I believe that did not show the same result. Um, so it looks like it, you know, kind of matches everything you guys talk about here. Is you know, if you're active and you're exercising hard and that type of thing, you know, time of day eating probably isn't going to matter all that much. Um, but again, if you're not active at all then it may have more of an effect in uh, those people. It may actually be the opposite effect. It would make sense. I mean, if you're always slightly glycogen depleted, for example, or that kind of thing from your training, you know, you just resynthesize, you know, put the glycogen back, put your carbohydrate stores yep. back, whereas a sedentary person who doesn't even know what it feels like to be glycogen depleted, you know, or like you said, they might not have the same amount of muscle mass or hormonal sure. milieu. Yeah. 
makes sense. But you said the non-trained guys, uh, late eating may be worse for them. Yeah, and that's uh, some stuff he's working on right now. So that's just based on a just on a conversation. But it'll hopefully be out sometime this year or maybe next year. So. Yeah, I'll tell you those conversations that you see, uh, you hear about between sessions. Sometimes yeah. it's the juiciest, you know. Yeah. Okay, Josh, what about the American College of Sports Medicine? Uh, well, I will say first off that uh, I, I left there a little disappointed too. There was nothing that really uh, lit lit my fire all that much. But I will have to say the most disappointing talk ignited probably the most interesting thoughts uh, in my mind, and. Um, so I'll mention that one, and that, that was a talk on the <clears throat> microbiome, uh, which, you know, talking about the microbiome is just a community of organisms that live uh, symbiotically uh, on us and, and within us. And I thought it was, there wasn't really much science and talk on it. It was kind of like, uh, this is something that we need to be more aware of. These are some ideas that we need to look at in the future. And, and they did come up with some really interesting ideas. Uh, regarding the microbiome or this bacteria, I think we're pretty aware of, you know, when we touch a doorknob or we, uh, you know, are washing our hands and all that, we're, we're a bit of aware of the bacteria on us. And I, I just have to throw out a, a quick plug for, for my students. They, they did a really nice study last year uh, led by Brandon Higberdian, and it was presented at ACSM by uh, Nimish Patel. Even not just our skin in contact with an object, but they looked at uh, sport play, so playing basketball, uh, playing volleyball, and, and the bacteria on our hands can actually be transferred from our hands to a basketball right to the next person. Uh, just, just the idea that, that bacteria can be transferred uh, so easily just really was something to, to make me think. Um, uh, lots of implications for disease transmission, such as uh, uh, MRSA, that can have some pretty pretty bad pathological um, outcomes with it. And so they talked a, a bit about that, and then also about our oral bacteria and our in, intestinal bacteria. And I, there were a couple of figures that I just thought were really awesome to, to think about, and that's that we as humans have 10 times more microbial cells than human cells. And that comes out to be about 10 trillion uh, cells, or 1% to 3% of our body weight. So about wow. 2 to 6 pounds of bacteria each of us are carrying around. I, I was pretty astonished by wow. that. Wow. Yeah. Um, just, to, just to give an idea, the brain they, you know, weighs about three pounds. So uh, it's very, very interesting. And some of the implications for research are for our dietary and even supplemental needs. Um, research is starting to take this in, a, in effect. And uh, one example is, I think it was JAP, but uh, Journal of Applied Physiology, where they were looking at uh, beetroot juice, which is probably a topic I won't get to, but that was kind of a hot topic for a poster session at ACSM was beetroot juice. And um, in that study, they mentioned that their subjects were to abstain from antibacterial mouthwash and chewing gum because that would eradicate the oral bacteria necessary for conversion of nitrate to nitrites that is, is the importance of why we're ingesting beetroot juice. So if you eradicate those bacteria, then you know you can't have this conversion. We can't convert nitrate to nitrite without those oral bacteria. And another implication that I thought was really interesting, I'm, I'm sure you guys came across this study, but it was in April of this year, 2013, in Nature, so big-time big time publication uh, that was looking at the metabolism of L-carnitine, which is highly found in red meat. And I know a lot of our listeners, me included, ingest a lot of red meat. And they were showing that those people that ingest more red meat had um, a conversion of L-carnitine to something abbreviated as TMAO, trimethylamine and oxide, which is pro-atherogenic, causes cardiovascular disease. But what was most interesting about that study was that when they eradicated all intestinal bacteria through the use of antibiotics, this conversion didn't happen. And so, you know, if we look at that, obviously we can't, we can't eradicate all of our bacteria because we have a mixture of good and bad bacteria um, that would obviously bad, be bad if we get rid of, of the good bacteria as well. But I think it does point at that there are certain bacterias that, that lie within our gut that are are causing a whole bunch of, of different conversions with the diets that we impose upon ourselves, the supplements that we take that can have really huge implications on 
on potential outcomes that we're looking to have or, or looking to prevent. Um, and I got to throw this in there because at first I thought it was a joke when when they presented it, but it is no joke. But one of the answers that they came up with was uh, in in helping uh, promote a better gut bacteria. Oh, I know, the, I know where you're going. <laughs> it's it's called fecal microbiota transplants. Yeah. And and yes, what they do is they take a fecal suspension from a healthy individual. And they homogenize it with saline, and they filter it, and they put it in another individual through a nasogastric tube, enema. Um, you know, can you imagine leaving that and going, man, do you smell that in the air? <laughs> um, but, you know, I couldn't help me think that, you know, you're going to get wild and crazy individuals that think, well, you know, you take this really strong athlete or somewhat, you know, a bodybuilder that has huge amounts of muscle and, you know, try to get a fecal transplant from them so you have the right intestinal bacteria oh to God. obtain the same thing but but no that you could uh, it's actually happening out there apparently. right yeah you could do like i did and move to thailand for seven months and drink the water <laughs> i just drank the water and i it was after three months that i found out you're not supposed to and even the locals won't drink it but i lived so i must oh, have very strong bacteria you know josh i um <laughs> on science friday uh, on npr if anybody's interested they talk quite a bit about the whole you know um the, you know, biome, um, microbiota and that sort of thing. And um, I've seen amazing studies how where they'll take obese rats and they'll take the contents of their large intestines, mm-hmm. which is not unlike the, the fecal stuff that Josh is talking about, and they'll put that obese rat fecal matter and all the bacteria in lean rats, and the lean animals get fat. It's yeah. just amazing because of some of the conversions that happen or like you were saying with uh, with the L-carnitine and the heart disease risk. And um, they were actually talking about doing... Who would be your donor if you had something like irritable bowel syndrome? You know, the easy it is a natural way to change your microbiome, you know, your gut bacteria populations with maybe getting a spouse, you know, to be the donor. But there's just something super disturbing about putting <laughs> poop in you. <laughs> right. It's getting past the idea of it. I think it's, it's difficult to, to swallow, if you will, uh, for a lot of people. Um, just yeah. to kind of end that, that talk, for those that are interested, I have no connection with this, but I was thinking about potentially doing it just because I think we all love data. Uh, but there are a couple of pro- projects out there that um, they are uh, citizen-driven uh, uh, for the most part, I believe. But uh, there's a ubiome.com, U-B-I-O-M-E.com. And then there's uh, uh, something called the Human Food Project, uh, the American Gut, which is through the University of Colorado Boulder. And for approximately ninety hundred bucks, apparently you can. Um, it's it's all donation, and you end up getting a fairly full report on what your own microbiome is, and you can compare it to other individuals that have submitted their own tests. And I think it's interesting. On the other side, I don't think there's much you can really do with it right now because we don't we don't know the combinations of bacteria that are most beneficial, and we're just scratching the surface on on you know what bacteria is beneficial or what is not beneficial so um it might be interesting data for those interested um you know then again you might not be able to use it for a while until more research comes out with uh, some data i do see a lot of products eventually um earlier than later it's even happening now of course focusing on live cultures and this and that now what i've learned from interviews on science friday at least is that you can't dramatically change the populations in your gut, but you can have enough of a change that some of the bacteria you consume apparently communicate with the bacteria in your gut. And it's just, I think the amazing thing with all this is that the effects may extend beyond your intestines. There's crosstalk with uh, the brain and all kinds of things, apparently. Uh, and there's even talk of pro-viruses now, as opposed to just, you know, pro-bacteria types of things. So radical stuff. I see supp- the supplement world moving in that direction in some ways. I really do. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, they they really did focus on the crosstalk, and I think we're seeing a lot of that even w- within other areas, such as you know muscle tissue and how it crosstalks with uh, fatty tissue or or uh, other organ systems. Uh, it, it, it makes it very complicated. <laughs> yeah. I'd just request that we stick to things like yogurt and kefir and fermented foods and stay away from fecal matter. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds much more appetizing yeah. to me. No, give me some kimchi. Or something, you know, I'm not. Um, so. Yeah, the fecal transplant is a little radical. Uh, 
Yeah. And I think Josh has a good point. Until we get more information, I do see us moving toward the point where you might want to say, you know, X percent of your oral or even nasal or intestinal bacteria should be this strain. You know, X percent should be that strain. We may eventually move toward that. I think we will. But right now, it's a bit of a crapshoot. And I think some of the best advice might be just to, like you said, eat stuff like yogurt, eat stuff that um, is probably less processed, less fast food, less, you know, all the things that would induce obesity might be doing so, so partly well, through a, a gut bacteria mechanism. What do you guys think about all this? You know, there's a lot of talk of, you know, a lot of the reasoning behind this is now there's so many antibacterial products out there, and, and it's even getting in the water. You know, and pe- a lot of people don't realize that, you know, it kills good bacteria. Too. Right, yeah. <sighs> so, Josh, um, so that was interesting, actually. I- I'm glad you brought that up. What What else? Uh, a few short ones, but I think it's important for the audience to hear because it's always good to hear uh, reinforcement for, for what we do as um, strength athletes and, and fitness enthusiasts. Um, Stephen, Stephen Blair um well-known researcher at University of um, South Carolina, uh, looked at fitness and and mortality. They did a study. It was 19 years of follow-up for for mortality from 7,500 subjects, all men. And they looked at both cardiorespiratory fitness and muscular strength as mortality predictors. And they found both to be predictors of mortality. So I think that's something that we are probably aware of. But they actually showed that muscular strength, and that's through one repetition max, was more strongly associated with mortality as we increase in age. And I, I think, you know, we, we know it's important for uh, not only young individuals, but especially for the aging population for the multitude of effects that, that occur with strength training. But um, I, I think it really just kind of hit home. And 19 years is a, is a long study to do. And uh, when I read that, it's just, you know, it, it's just good news for us. Yeah, longitudinal studies like that are actually quite rare and take a huge amount of time and effort and money oftentimes. Uh, that's right. Interesting. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, similarly, I'll just keep those the same. Uh, uh, I think we always work a little bit harder at, at getting our uh, female listeners and the female population into strength training as well. Um, and uh, there was a study in Costa Rica that looked at college females performing resistance training exercise at moderate and high intensity exercise and and they had increased uh, body image perceptions both acutely and chronically um, although I can't remember how long that that study was and they hypothesized some of the acute changes um, were due to uh, you know the, the transient response to exercise how you know you look a little bit better in the mirror uh, you know after a workout and chronic changes with uh, the familiarization with exercise and the acquisition of skills associated with exercise. But, you know, I just think another positive, um, another positive for us to think about with strength training in, in females that I think is uh, really good. Um, you know, have you guys talked about Lonnie? I, I don't know why I'm seeing so much of this because it's perplexing to me. And that is melatonin supplementation with exercise. Mm. Um, I'm, you know, it was ironic that at ACSM there was a big talk on the importance of sleep uh, and recovery and exercise and, and, uh, and physical health, which we all know. But, but then there's this whole other side that's looking at melatonin supplementation and, and, and performance. Or a couple of the posters I looked at were looking at uh, core temperature regulation uh, with melatonin. So the ability to use melatonin to properly regulate body temperature um, so that we might have better performance during those instances where the environment might be providing a, a high heat environment. But, you know, I can't help but get over the fact that, you know, what, what is a double peak in melatonin, you know, throughout, you know, we have one maybe in the middle of the day and another one at night, how that would impact uh, chronic sleep patterns and, and, you know, that implication on how our recovery is going to be. I was just surprised to see you know, research in, in that area. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Have you yeah. seen much on melatonin? And I, the, I, I think I've seen papers about melatonin serving as a growth hormone secretagogue and things like mm-hmm. that. Mike, you probably know the most about this. Have you, what's your experience with melatonin? Yeah, it's, most of the initial research was, like you said, more for sleep. Uh, the biggest thing, obviously, is people don't resetting the circadian rhythm 
especially people who do shift work and go to bed at different times and that type of thing too. Um, like Josh said, the, the one study that was looking at uh, temperature, uh, was a 5-milligram dose of melatonin lowered core temperature by 0.2 C, so not a big difference. Um, I, I know there's another study that Josh was talking about, too, looking at antioxidant potential in athletes with melatonin, like pre-exercise. I think that was last year. Um, to me, that just sounds like uh, people looking for papers to publish on something novel, but we forgot about looking at the big picture. <laughs> I think that's exactly right, Mike. I mean, you really hit it up. Hit it on the on the head of the nail it's there. I mean, really see an effect, but like you were saying, Josh, it's like okay, so I'm going to give you something that we know is used to regulate sleep pattern that tells your body it's time to sleep, and then we're going to have you go exercise, and oh look, we found something. It's like well, that I don't know. That just seems like one of the world's worst ideas for a study. <laughs> it does seem to fly in the face of any kind of diurnal rhythms and you know i mean i was believe it or not i was just um looking at some research that suggested that vegetables in the grocery store still even after being separated from the plant go through a daily like light dark cycle of different chemicals and it might be better to eat you know your cabbage at a different time of the day and that sort of thing and i think stuff like this it just emphasizes you know biological rhythms and i think like you're saying it you're almost you're you're playing with mother mother nature in a way that m- could backfire because of homeostasis somehow you know you you have a big melatonin peak during the day because of a, a workout or something but then what happens to your sleep patterns later or your hormones going up and down throughout the course of the day you know what i mean it's um it's kind I of I just think business. of like someone trying to push on a car one direction and a guy in the other one trying to push it the other direction <laughs> right it's like oh the car went forward oh okay but then this seems like a bad idea to start. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Lonnie, I'll, I, I got you know, a couple quick ones. I okay. think if we got time. Yep, go ahead. Uh, I think important because, uh, you know, I think it's still at least a, a hot supplement for a lot of people right now, and that's beta alanine. And, and I did hear, um, and may, I don't remember who it was from because uh, I have early onset dementia, but I think Mike might be able to remember. And I thought it was very interesting that at ISSN someone brought up that um, uh, beta alanine uh, increased carnosine levels, which is what it's supposed to do, but they measured um, and found elevated carnosine levels up to 45 weeks after uh, beta alanine was was discontinued. So you take beta alanine, you increase your carnosine levels like it's supposed to, and then it stayed elevated for, and they measured it up to 45 weeks, and they were saying that it might even be longer than that. They just don't know. So the idea that Potentially, you know, you might be able to use this supplement to increase your carnosine levels, and then you might be good for quite a while. Am, am I am I remembering that correctly, Mike? Yeah, it's pretty close. That was actually from Dr. Roger Harris, who, hmm. as listeners probably know, um, did all the seminal beta alanine research, and I, I was just amazed that he was just he spoke there uh, two years ago, and this year was there just hanging out in the audience. I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and he said that they, the study that they did, you're correct, Josh, that going back to baseline for a washout, he said, can take up to 45 weeks. So doing a crossover study would be just the world's biggest pain in the butt. So it's going to take 45 weeks to, you know, get back down to your baseline levels. Um, they said they did a study that was six months using a total dose of beta alanine of 3.2 grams per day. And exactly your point, he said at the end of six months, he said carnosine levels, right, so beta-alanine plus histidine is carnosine, which is an intramuscular buffer, um, they were still going up. So then the question is, if they're still going up at the end of six months, well, what is the the most ideal dose? So he said they're going to try to repeat it now with a 6.4-gram dose per day for another six months, different group of people, and see if they'll actually get to a point where it becomes sort of maxed out. Um, the hard part is that if you if you take a fair amount of beta alanine at once, you get that sort of uh, itchy kind of sensation. So trying to dose it at a high dose becomes kind of problematic. Yeah, then but then it's working, Mike. That means it's working. I know. And then <laughs> workouts and you feel twitchy, and you go, well, it must be the beta alanine that's doing it. It must be good. 
Um, so, and one other side note on that too, he said that there's a study looking at uh, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, and supposedly in Asians that they didn't have that sort of itchy sensation with higher dose beta alanine. So maybe if you're Asian, you can take a whole bunch at once, and you don't get the itchy sensation, and you're good to go. That's interesting. That's called paresthesis, I think, isn't it? Yep, something like that. Correct. Yeah. And the old theory on that was that it was an interaction at the DRG level in the spine, that it was just basically hitting those nerves. Now nobody's really quite sure what it is. <laughs> I've actually tried. I think some people are more sensitive. I've tried um, yeah. beta alanine. I think that's one of the things. Well, like creatine, and, and Phil's mentioned this in the past as well, but creatine's not just good for athletes. Athletes will guinea pig themselves, but then you realize it might be good for cogn- cognition and yep. you know the elderly. And, and now it's the same thing with beta alanine. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, um, beta alanine leading to carnosine increases in the body. You'll see animals living much longer, you know, and that kind of thing in, in animal research. So, I mean, the longevity people are interested in this kind of stuff too. This is kind of cool. Yeah, and even last year was interesting when uh, Roger Harris gave his talk. He was talking about creatine and was stating that there were some, you know, infants who hadn't been breastfed that, you know, may actually start developing uh, muscular issues because they don't have any creatine. That creatine is actually, as you know, essential, you know, for the development of the system. So that it's not that far off, and there's a few studies on it showing that supplementing kids with creatine is can be very beneficial. And that really freaks people out. Yeah, yeah. People have such bizarre thoughts about creatine. They think it's a steroid. They, I get asked all the time, you know, yeah. I have a teenager. Can he take it? I'm like, you know, the only bad part of this would be that if you're encouraging some kind of doping behavior with yeah. it, you know, and it's just on how you approach it. It's just a nutrient, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, we had a we had a, yeah. a lady that came in worried because she found a bottle of steroids in her son's room, and it was a bottle of creatine. Oh lord! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <sighs> Can I leave you with one last one? You bet. Uh, it's the only one I had on my list, so I feel good when I get through my list. But uh, that was with the only reason I want to hit it is because uh, I still see you know paleo popping up everywhere, and it was the only one I saw on the paleo diet. But interestingly, they looked at ten weeks of a paleo diet which consists of, you know, meat, fruit, vegetables, eggs, nuts. And uh, they also had an um, intervention of circuit training that they performed. And surprisingly, they found uh, non-HDL cholesterol, so uh, what we might consider bad cholesterol, LDL specifically, um, and even total cholesterol all rose uh, during this uh, 10 weeks of a paleo diet, um, even though there was a more favorable body composition that was achieved. And then they stratified their subjects to those that started out with more ideal blood profiles, and those were the individuals that were most negatively impacted by this diet. Um, it, it was a, a bit interesting, and I couldn't find out what um, what these individuals' uh, diets were like before the study, but uh, yeah, it was interesting nonetheless. Hmm. Was there an increase in HDL also, or just LDL? Uh, that is a good question. I, I don't remember off the, I don't want to say because I don't remember for sure. Yeah. I was just curious because I'm wondering if they were eating more fat than what they had before or different composition or something. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So that's all I got. Cool. Well, thank you guys for, uh, for some of the updates. You know, there's not always going to be some earth shattering new thing. And I think that's a good lesson to learn, right? I mean, a lot of dietary supplement companies, for example, um, they always want to make everything look like a breakthrough, the new rules of this or that. And, you know, there's not always a breakthrough, a new rule. Sometimes things inch forward. Sometimes it's a new discovery that may or may not pan out, like what we were talking about earlier. So, uh, But it's it, it, unless you go, it's really hard to, you know, to know what's coming next, you know. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, thanks, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, guys. Pleasure <laughs> as always. Have a great weekend. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. 
Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state of the art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.